few books are as fundamental to the Christian faith as the book of Exodus. Exodus not only teaches us about the redemption of God's people, Israel, but it also provides us with a paradigm for understanding God's future redemption of humanity. The people of Israel were physically enslaved in Egypt. Humanity today is spiritually enslaved to sin. We're all in need of redemption. God redeemed Israel, enabling them to cross over out of Egypt. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are all enabled to cross over into life from our sin. When we understand the book of Exodus, we understand God, his grace, and ultimately our redemption. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Vintage Church. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. If you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus chapter 19. If you are new or it's been a while since you've looked at the book of Exodus, I would encourage you to check out the link on the screen. There's a QR code as well. You can see that online if you're watching online. Uh, We have kind of made this decision that when we look at big books of the Bible, long books of the Bible, like, for instance, Exodus, uh, we want to kind of break it into sizable chunks. And so three years ago, believe it or not, we started the book of Exodus. And I promise you that next year, we are going to finish the book of Exodus. But if you're like, hey, listen, I have no idea. This is the first thing I've ever heard of Exodus, the first time I've ever read this, or I'm looking for resources, everything's online. You can find all of the sermons, Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 18 that we've preached thus far. You can find an introduction booklet to Exodus. So you're like, I don't know anything about it, or I'm just trying to figure out the Bible. That's a great resource that you can go to to learn more about Exodus. Now, today we're kicking off something that I think is really important. Some would argue that the central point of Exodus is found between chapters 19 and chapters 24. We're going to spend the next few weeks looking at those key chapters. Because what happens in Exodus chapter 19, the people of Israel approach a very important place, a spot in the Middle East called Mount Sinai. If you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, anybody ever seen that movie with Charlton Heston? I know it's like old at this point, right? But that's like the mountain of God, and there's a bunch of stuff that happens there. And this is really kind of the middle point, the middle part of the book of Exodus. And so we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at these chapters and looking at what God has to teach us, what the book of Exodus has to teach us from Exodus chapter 19 to Exodus chapter 24. If you're taking notes, this is kind of the big idea that I want you to hold on to today. A holy God, everybody say holy. A holy God initiates a committed relationship with a people he makes holy. Everybody say holy. A holy God initiates a committed relationship with a people he makes holy. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that it's divided into two what? An old and a new? Exactly. If you didn't know that, you just learned something today. An Old Testament and a New Testament. And another word for that word, testament, is the word covenant. 
You might not be familiar with that word. It's not a word that we use often in our vernacular and in our culture. But in the Bible, in the scriptures, the idea of covenant is absolutely essential. In fact, you can't understand the book of Exodus, let alone all of the Bible, old and new, without understanding what a covenant is. And simply put, a covenant is the way that God relates to us. It's the way that he has relationship with us. Sometimes you hear people talk about the God of the Bible and they're like, I mean, he's like this distant, angry God, right? But the idea actually in the Old and the New Testaments is that God is not necessarily angry and distant. In fact, he's loving and relational. He wants to have a relationship with his people. That's why we just said a holy God initiates a committed relationship with a people he makes holy. So we're going to break Exodus chapter 19 up into smaller sections. First, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. You'll see the words on the screen as well. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of where? Sinai, right? We just talked about that. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There, Israel encamped before the mountain, Mount Sinai, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my what? Covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. First action item, if you will, that I think the text teaches us is this. Commit to the Lord. Commit to the Lord. Now, what I just talked about was this idea of covenant, right? God's covenant with Israel. Covenant in the Old and New Testament is the way that God commits. In our culture, when we talk about commitment, what's something that we talk about? Marriage, right? That we commit to one another, that we make vows as husband and wife to be committed to one another. And we do that before God and these witnesses, right? That's the way in which we talk about commitment in the Old and New Testament, in the scriptures. Covenant is the way that God and the people of Israel commit to one another. One way to define a covenant is this. It's a chosen relationship. Chosen, not forced. So important in this context. In which two parties make binding promises to each other. So whenever you read in the Old Testament this idea of a covenant, one of the things that happens is the history of the two parties or the two relationships 
are kind of repeated. We see that in this story, and we're going to look at it in just a moment. And then there are promises that the two parties make to each other. Okay, if this is not making sense to you, just think about going to a wedding. The bride and the groom do what? They exchange vows, promises that they're going to make to one another. And then there is typically, when a covenant is made between God and the people of Israel, there are blessings and there are curses. To say, listen, if you uphold this part of the covenant, you will be blessed. But if you break this covenant, you will be cursed. So all of these things are a part of the covenant. One author says it like this, that a covenant is a relationship between parties characterized by faithfulness and loyalty and love. Again, the way in which God makes relationships with his people is through covenant. It's about commitment. So God covenants with the people of Israel, and the way he does that is he commits to Israel. I want you to go back and I want you to look at verse 4 of Exodus chapter 19. It starts with what God did. Notice Israel didn't do anything. Because God is the one who initiates this relationship. It's God who acts. So look at verse 4. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What God is doing in one singular verse is he is summarizing Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 18. He's saying, let me tell you what I have done for you, what our relationship history looks like. I mean, think about it like this. It's almost like, let me tell you about our dating relationship, guys. God is saying, this is what I've done to you for you up to this point. But then look at verse 5 again. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God does this. He says, listen, I'm going to remind you of what I've done for you, but I'm going to put the vow that I want you to make to me before you. To say what? You have to uphold the covenant. Everything that I tell you to do. We're going to read in Exodus chapter 20, right? What does uh, Charlton Heston do when he comes up on the, on the Mount Sinai? He gets what? The Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm, that's very dated, obviously, right? You got to go home today and maybe look at Turner Classic Movies, right? And find the Ten Commandments. He goes up to Mount Sinai and he gets the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are what God says, I want you to do Israel. And if you will obey me, then you will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. All of this is getting at those vows, that covenant that Israel was to make. They were to be a treasured possession, meaning they were to be God's son. They were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, meaning they were, when the rest of the nations looked at Israel, they were supposed to demonstrate who the God of the universe was. I mean, really, it's what Adam and Eve were created to do all along, but they didn't do. All of this, this is so important for you to understand, because sometimes I think we have a limited understanding of the Old Testament. And when we read the Old Testament, we think this is all about works. It's all about follow the law, follow the law, follow the law, and God will love you. 
But what I want you to see is that this covenant that God is making with Israel is all about grace. The people of Israel did not initiate this relationship. They were not the ones that said, hey, we would like to be in a relationship with you, God. God came to them and said, I want you to be my people. And by the way, why did God choose Israel? We don't know. Now, what God does say is like, listen, Israel, I didn't choose you because you're the, the largest in number of nations. Or I didn't choose you because you're the most powerful. Right? So there was nothing that Israel did to earn God's love or, or, or earn God's favor. What's that called? That's called grace. It was simply because God is a loving, gracious, merciful God that he chose Israel. Covenant is always based on grace, unmerited, nothing you can earn, nothing you can do for it, favor. So God commits to Israel, and then notice that Israel commits to God. In verse 8, what does it say? All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, notice something, that this relationship was not forced, God is saying, listen, I'm putting the covenant before you. You can choose this or you can reject this. So I'm giving you the opportunity, right? I mean, I'm extending my grace to you, but it's up to you to receive this and to take it and, and make it your own and vow to follow me. So it's an unforced relationship. And at the same time, notice this, it's corporate. It's community. It's not as if Moses went to each and every individual and said, okay, do you commit to follow the Lord? Do you commit to follow the Lord? Do you commit to follow the Lord? Remember, there's like 600,000 Israelites. Remember last week in Exodus chapter 18? Moses is like the office of motor vehicles, right? Where people are just coming to him with all of their complaints and all of their concerns. This is a corporate moment where, where God is saying, listen, if it's not going to be one of you, it's got to be all of you. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around when we live in a culture and in a world that is so individualistic. And when we think about the world, rarely do we think about people around us. Even if you're like the most well-intentioned person, you're beginning to think about you. What Moses tells us is that it's all of the people that have to commit. And my encouragement to us is to think about that in light of the church. That the church, the, the, the body of Christ, the believers of Jesus, were to think less individualistically and more corporately. So just as God committed and covenanted with Israel, this is what's important for us. God covenants with his church. Right? There's a reason that there's an old what? Testament and a new what? Testament. So God makes a covenant with Israel, but then that covenant extends, it's a new covenant to his church through who? Jesus, right? Anytime we talk about the New Testament, the answer is who? Jesus, right? That's the cheat answer, right? Like, you know when you're taking a multiple choice test and you're like, well, I guess it's all C's, right? C, 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 Jesus, that's the answer. So the New Testament comes along, and God, listen, God is not necessarily upending everything that he's done. 
He's just simply bringing his old covenant, the Old Testament, to fruition, to fulfillment in Jesus. He sends his son, because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, sends him to earth. Jesus puts on flesh, becomes human, and he goes to the cross to die for what? Not his sins, but our sins, the sins of humanity. Does he stay dead? No, that's the good news, right? He gets up from the grave and he comes back to life. And all of that is so important because here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing what God has always done, being faithful to the covenant. But if you read the rest of the Old Testament, were the people of Israel faithful to their vows? The answer is no. I can promise you, just turn, you can just pick any place in the Old Testament. Just Literally, blindly, pick a, pick a spot in the Old Testament, and they're breaking the covenant. It's bad. So Israel couldn't uphold the covenant. So what does God do? God sends his son Jesus to stand as the new Israel. And does Israel, up, or I'm sorry, does Jesus uphold the covenant? The answer is yes. The way that the scriptures describe Jesus is he is sinless. Meaning he does everything that God the Father tells him to do, which is why he can go to the cross and die for our sins, the sins of humanity. Because he's exactly like God, because he is God, and at the same time, he is exactly like us because he is fully human. This is the new covenant. And this is how God covenants with us to make a relationship with us. Now, it requires... Something on our behalf. We have to commit to God. In the New Testament, there are two acts that really should be understood as one. Faith and baptism. In the New Testament, the way we commit to the Lord is by faith and baptism. Faith is kind of three things. It's intellectual. There's knowledge that we have to know, right? I didn't blindly marry my wife. We weren't like, you know, she's not a Russian bride or anything like that. It was like, sorry, that's probably inappropriate. But I mean, we knew each other, right? We dated and we had knowledge about one another to say, look, I like you and you like me. And hey, let's, we'll spend the rest of our lives together. In the same way, when we covenant with God, there's knowledge about God. And that knowledge leads us to a confidence that this is who God says he is. And because who, this is who he says he is, then I can finally leads to an act of trust to say, I'm going to trust God. Now, here's the thing about faith. Faith is never a private action. It's a public action. And faith goes public where? Baptism. One author in probably like the ultimate book on baptism says this. He says, in the New Testament, it is everywhere assumed that faith proceeds to baptism and that baptism is for faith. So what happens in baptism? Why is it the way in which we commit? Well, number one, baptism serves as an oath. When we are baptized, we identify with and swear allegiance to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? 
the name, did you notice that by the way, singular, one name, and yet what does Jesus say in the name of the Father? Wait, hold on, I'm confused. The name, and but there are what? How many names? Why? Because God is one. You guys are so smart. Because God is one, right? It's one name, but it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Part of the reason we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is because we are identifying with God and we are swearing allegiance to God. In the ancient church, when you would get baptized, you would turn to the west and you would, you would deny, denounce, reject Satan. And then you would turn to the east and swear your allegiance to follow Jesus. Because baptism is like an oath. But baptism also serves as a sign, seal, and symbol. It's a sign in which it confirms, I'm sorry, in which it points to. It's a seal in which it confirms. And it's a symbol in which it symbolizes the new covenant. Or our relationship with Jesus. So look at this verse with me, if you will. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I just want you to see what Paul is doing here between Old Testament and New Testament. He says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now that's a big deal. It might not be for us because we're like, what does that have to do with anything? But the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was what? Circumcision. So Paul says, In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What does all this mean? Verse 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also what? Raised with him in baptism. Through faith, remember? Faith and baptism always work together, always go together. In the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when we think about baptism, it is a sign in which it always points to Jesus and what Jesus has done. It's also a symbol in that when you are baptized, we immerse. So you're going under the water, which symbolizes what? Death. And then you are coming up out of the water, which symbolizes what? Resurrection. So it is a sign in that every time someone is baptized, it points to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. It's a symbol in that it symbolizes his death and his resurrection. And it's a seal in which when you are baptized, you are confirming to you and everyone around your faith in the death and resurrection and in the person of Jesus. Do do you see how those things work together? So baptism, by faith, is the way that we commit to the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. But here's the thing. Number two, when we commit to the Lord, something has to change. Let's look at verses 9 through 15. 9 through 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today. 
and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. Now they're... Wait, what, what? What did I just read? Do not go near a woman. What does all this have to do? What's going on? Right? There's a lot going on. Just a side note. Something very interesting in the book of Exodus, every time Moses goes up the mountain and comes down the mountain. Who came down from heaven? Jesus. Who went up to heaven? Jesus. That's just extra for you to think about. So what do we learn about ourselves in verses 9 through 15? If we're to commit to the Lord, number two, we're to become like the Lord. Because God is what? God is holy. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a what? Thick cloud. And if you keep reading this passage, one of the things that you're going to notice is that there is something sacred about Mount Sinai in which the people of Israel were not supposed to get near this mountain. Because of who? The Lord. Because there was the people of Israel, and then there was the Lord, and the Lord is holy, and the people of Israel were not yet holy. God is holy. When we talk about holy, we talk about being set apart, or different, or separated. When we talk about God being holy, what we're getting at is that God is holy in that he's in a class all of his own. There is no one or nothing else like him. So God is holy... And this whole section is about Israel becoming holy. There's two words in verses 9 through 11 that speak to this. God tells Moses to consecrate the people of Israel. That word simply means make them what? Holy. Set them apart. And then he tells them to wash their clothes. Now, I know there's that weird part at the end of this section that they say, do not go near what? A woman. In the Old Testament, this is going to be as quick as I possibly can go. In the Old Testament, there is not only spiritual holiness, but there is physical holiness. And there are things in the Old Testament that would make a person impure. Not just spiritually impure, but physically impure. Things like sexual activity with someone, right? Which is why they say, don't go near a woman or things like mold in your house, right? They didn't live in Southeast Louisiana. They don't understand moisture in the air, right? That's some of the stuff going on in this section. The idea behind it is simply that God is holy. He's different. He's set apart and therefore Israel was to be holy. Now, if God's holy and we're thinking about ourselves in the church, what does that mean for us? The church, we are called to be what? Holy. I wish you guys would have said that with a lot more confidence, right? We're called to be what? Holy. There we go. We are called to be holy. And I I love that today we're teaching on this text because what is today? Pastor Mark shared about it. It's Pentecost. So we are holy because the holy what came to us? Spirit. 
So the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit comes into us. And the incredible beauty about the Holy Spirit is he is who? He's God. So when the Holy Spirit comes into us, Jesus, his death and his resurrection and everything that Jesus did becomes ours. Why? Because the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. So Pentecost is this powerful reminder that the presence of the Holy Spirit in his church unites us and connects us to the work of Christ, which in turn does what to us? Makes us holy. See, there's this incredible reality when we think about Pentecost of not just being declared righteous. When we're declared righteous or declared holy, that's called justification. But there's this reality that, yes, God sees us and he sees Christ's righteousness on us. But now, through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and through us nurturing our relationship with the Holy Spirit, God is actually making us literally what? Holy. The, the, the reformer John Calvin called it a double grace. Remember, the covenant is based on what? Grace. The New Testament, Jesus, this covenant, the church is based on what? Grace. So we're called to be holy. We are committed to the Lord and then we become like the Lord. All of this leads to something significant in Exodus chapter 19 that's going to carry over for the rest of the chapters. We're called to worship the Lord. Look at verses 16 through 25 to wrap up Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day. Also, did you notice that? A lot of references to the third day. Did something else happen on the third day by any chance? Exactly. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, to look, and many of them perish." Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And Lord, the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Israel worshipped from a distance. There's a word in verse 17 that I want you to see. It says, Then Moses brought the people of the camp to meet God. Anytime we meet with God, we do what? We worship. And the thing about worship is it's always this revelation and this response. When we meet God, what God does is he reveals himself. He shows us who he is. 
He reveals a part of his character. He reveals what he's done on our behalf. And the worship part of this is in the revelation, we do what? We respond. We respond to who God is and what God has done. We, we worship him. We adore him. Interesting description in this text. One commentator describes everything that's going on like this. He says, the mountain smokes, it blazes, it trembles and roars like a volcano in the midst of a hurricane. Now, we understand what hurricanes are. But could you just imagine putting a volcano in the midst of a hurricane? And all of this is related to God's holiness. The mountain was wrapped in smoke and there was thunder and there was lightning. There were all of these events. And throughout the Bible, I promise you, if you read from Genesis to Revelation, when you see other instances like this, what what the text is showing us is that God is present. God is revealing himself. And for Israel, they had to stand back and worship from a distance because they were terrified. Now, here's the incredible good news for you and I. We don't worship at a distance. We worship in proximity. We're able to get close. And the reason we're able to get close is because our God is relational. He makes a covenant with us. And the new covenant is unlike the old covenant in some ways. The book of Hebrews is chock full of ways in which the old and the new covenant are different. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me and just see what the author of Hebrews is doing when he compares the old to the new covenant. Look at what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have what? Confidence. Did the people of Israel have confidence to approach God? No, they were scared out of their mind. Since we have confidence, is that like optional? Or is it like you might have confidence? Or do we have confidence? We have it, right? It's guaranteed. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of who? Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us what? Is it up there? Wait, hold on. Is it up there? I can't read it. Let us what? Draw near. Did the people of Israel draw near? No, they were scared. But since we have confidence, let us draw near. How are we to draw near? With a true heart. Meaning our heart's not divided. Meaning we're not looking at God saying, I I mean, you look really good, but I'm kind of concerned about who you might be. No, we have a true heart. Meaning everything that God says, we believe about him and we trust in him. We draw near with a true heart in full what? Assurance. In full assurance of faith. And look at the language that the author of Hebrews uses. With our hearts sprinkled what? Cleanliness is connected to what? Holiness. See, there is such a thing as cleanliness is next to 
God, I'm telling you, it's real. Let us draw near with a, with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Does that sound familiar? Like maybe the author of Hebrews is alluding to what? Baptism. Do you see what the new covenant promises us? That unlike the people of Israel who stood back, who was like, man, God has done something for us. He's redeemed us from Egypt and from slavery. And he wants to make us a people, but we're, we're a little scared. We're, we're kind of timid. Where the book of Hebrews says, listen, this covenant is different in this way. We have assurance to draw near to God. We have assurance because of who? Jesus. Because Jesus dying on the cross what, it took away whatever separates us from God, our sin. And he drew us near to him. So now, as followers of Jesus, we can approach God boldly. With assurance, with confidence, not because of us, but because of God. We can worship him. See, what I want you to connect with Exodus 19 and really all of Scripture is this idea that God wants a relationship with us because he desires to be worshipped. And in fact, you could say it another way that God deserves to be worshipped. But there's this incredible thing that happens that when we worship God, we are in what? Relationship with God. Relationship and worship, these things go together. And what we read about in Exodus 19, this is just the beginning of this relationship, this covenant that God is making with Israel. Where he's saying, listen, people of Israel, I'm committing to you. Will you commit to me? I am a holy God. If I commit to you, you must become like me. You must become holy. And when you commit to me and become like me, you will what? Worship me. The New Testament is saying the exact same thing. From Matthew to Revelation, it is Jesus has come. God is committing to us. Will we commit to him? God in Jesus is holy. Will we become a holy people? Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and in the empty grave, we can worship God. Will we worship him? Relationship, covenant, worship. I have a feeling that maybe not all of you, but many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia before. It's a story written by C.S. Lewis. And there's a part in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this week. As I was studying this passage, I thought about it. And I just want, you to re I want to read to you the extended quote. You might even know where I'm going. It says this, Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. <laughs> Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. 
I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver, braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's what? Good. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I mean, it's hard for us to piece together how a loving, holy God can be in relationship with us. How we serve and worship a holy God and yet love him and how we're not to be afraid of him at the same time. And I think C.S. Lewis does something incredible in this part of this story just to simply say, That there's a part of God that's not safe. That when you see his holiness, there should be that fear of the Lord. But also when you see that holiness and that your knees are knocking a little bit and you're slightly afraid, you recognize he is what? Good. He's good. That's why we commit to him. That's why we become like him. And that's why we worship him. Commit to the Lord. Become like the Lord. And worship the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who initiated a relationship with us. That a holy, righteous, just, loving, gracious, merciful God wants to have a relationship with his creation. Father, help us to pursue you. Help us to consecrate ourselves and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross and live by the power of the Holy Spirit to become more and more like you, holy in every way. That we can worship you. We love you and we thank you for loving us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.